trailblazers in research, innovators in technology, and those who simply have a good story. All make up the fabric that is George Mason University, Virginia's most diverse and innovative university. I'm John Hollis, and this is the Access to Excellence podcast. Hello, Patriots. This is George Mason University President Gregory Washington taking over the Access to Excellence podcast again to bring you another conversation with one of Mason's most esteemed faculty and thought leaders. Today, I'm speaking with Andrew Light, University Professor of Philosophy, Public Policy, and Atmospheric Sciences, and the Director of Mason's Institute for Philosophy and Public Policy. He is also a distinguished senior fellow in the climate program at the World Resources Institute in Washington, D.C. From 2013 through 2016, Andrew served as senior advisor and India counselor to the U.S. Special Envoy on Climate Change and was a staff member in the Secretary of State's Office of Policy Planning in the United States State Department. In that capacity, he was on the senior strategy team for the U.N. climate negotiations that actually led to the Paris Agreement on Climate. Really cool stuff. There is no one I can think of better to speak about the grand challenges of climate change, what it is, how it will affect us, and what we as educators, students, and advocates can do about it. Andrew, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's great to be with you. Well, before we start, let me give a basic definition for climate change, and then let's talk through a little bit about the challenges we face today. So climate change is a long-term change in the average weather patterns that have come to define Earth's local, regional, and global climate. These changes have a broad range of observed effects that are synonymous with the term climate change, right? It's not necessarily weather, but it's weather over a long period of time. Well, right, weather and average mean temperature as it goes up, as more heat is trapped by the Earth's atmosphere, So solar radiation comes in. It's a good thing that a lot of that is trapped, because if it wasn't trapped by our atmosphere, we'd be Mars. (laughs) The problem, though, is that we're starting to go the other direction. And because of human activity, mostly the production of carbon dioxide is a byproduct of burning fossil fuels for energy, but also other greenhouse gases like methane and hydrofluorocarbons and other things. We're creating conditions in our atmosphere that traps more of that solar radiation, and it raises the temperature of the planet in a very rapid way, much faster than we've seen over the geological timescale. Outstanding. It's a great definition. So let me begin with a statement from a fellow by the name of David Attenborough. And he gave this statement at the U.N. Climate Change Conference in 2018. Perhaps you were actually there at this conference. But one I, of the things, I was indeed. So one of the things he said that I found profound, he said, relative to climate change, right now we are facing a man-made disaster of a global scale, our greatest threat in a thousand years. If we don't take action, the collapse of our civilizations and the extinction of much of the natural world is on the horizon. That's the statement he made. Now, based on that statement, is there any doubt that climate change is happening and to a large extent is human-made? No, there's no doubt that it's happening and there is at this point no doubt that it's human-made. The scientific community has been through this over and over and over again. And look, all of us who have spent a large part of our professional lives working on climate change, a large part of our lives concerned about climate change, we don't want this to be true. 
we don't want this kind of threat to be upon us and to require the kind of speed and scale of change to respond to it that's going to be required to make sure that the worst impacts that Mr. Attenborough was alluding to there, uh, make sure they're, they're not realized. But the scientific community's gone through this. They've scrubbed. They look at sunspots, natural variation, all kinds of things. And just fundamentally, you cannot get to the pace and the increase of temperature that we've seen over the last 50 years if you take out human activity. There is just no other explanation for what's going on here. And the good part of that, the flip side of that, is that we do know what the problem is and the solutions are not impossible. They are things that we can do now, that we are doing now. And that's the hopeful part about actually understanding the causal relationship there rather than just simply being in a constant state of uncertainty about it. Well, this is great. Let me delve into this a little bit, because part of what we want to do here is to educate our community, primarily our students, who I am hopeful will be able to go out into the communities and start their careers in these areas of grand challenge. And the hope is that our students will gravitate towards these issues and try to resolve them. Look, the fact of the matter is you and I will have to deal with this issue for the rest of our lifetime. But this issue will define those students who are coming through our programs now. They will not just have to deal with the effects of it. They're going to have to resolve it if we're going to have a country to think of in our future. So for those of you who are data wonks, let me highlight a couple of things to you. And you can confirm, Andrew, on the back end. Okay. Using ice core data. And that ice core data literally goes back all the way to about 900 A.D., And we know that from 900 A.D. all the way up to the late 1700s, CO2 concentrations in parts per million was relatively constant, somewhere in the neighborhood of about 280 parts per million. And then something miraculous happens starting in the late 1700s, about 1770 or so until today. And we see the concentrations grow and they don't just grow gradually. It literally looks like a hockey stick. The numbers explode and it goes from 280 parts per million in 1770 to somewhere in the neighborhood of 415 parts per million today. So what happened around that time period? So I did some digging. Mm -hmm. There is a really interesting discovery that happened during that time. In 1769, James Watt produces the first practical steam engine, and that steam engine actually fueled the Industrial Revolution. We know that during the late 1790s, going into the 1800s, the steam engine fueled the production of coal. It enabled them to pull much more coal out of the ground. This was primarily in the UK and Europe. People don't realize the coal stocks in Britain at that time was the equivalent of the amount of oil in Saudi Arabia. The coal was used to make iron. The iron was used to make ships, to heat buildings, to power locomotives and other machinery, which the steam engine also powered. That is the start of the rise in this growth in parts per million. And it just continued on and on and on and on and on. Ever since uh, 1958, we're actually doing direct measurements in Hawaii of CO2 in the atmosphere. We can actually measure it directly. And you can take that direct measurement from 1958 on and you can match it with the ice core data over the same period of time. And there's a remarkable direct match. And so people have very high levels of confidence in this ice core data. And so that means they have very high levels of confidence in the fact that, wow, we've seen CO2 just dramatically grow unabated. The, The hockey stick growth is still continuing 
continuing to this day, slowed down a little bit relative to the pandemic, but the, the rise has been dramatic. That's right. That's right. And in fact, one of the you know, in my sort of my climate geek best moments was I got invited a few years ago to give some talks at Ohio State University and I went to the Bird Polar Research Center in Columbus, Ohio, and they took me into the room where they keep the ice core data, which I just think is the actual ice, not the data, the actual cores. The, the actual The cores. actual drilled cores. I've, I got, been in, I've been in that room. It's extraordinary, isn't it? I mean, yes. I mean, there is more information in those drilled cores than there is in all the libraries in Washington, D.C. is one way to think about it. It's just extraordinary. Extraordinary, and what you can extract from taking out those pockets of air that have been trapped in there, and then sort of, uh, you know, running analysis on it to see what the CO2 concentrations, and that that is data that goes back 800,000 years, and so you know we have seen over this geological time scale this sort of dance where CO2 emissions will go up for one reason or another, and temperature will go up, and they'll go down together, they go up together, they go down together. It's not entirely causal, it's a correlation. It's because sometimes the temperature will go up and that will proceed, then a, a, a release of CO2, sometimes it's CO2 that goes up first. But what we know is that they are locked together. And so that hockey stick you were talking about that begins at the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, which has continued to this day, we know where the temperature is going because we know exactly where the CO2 emissions are going. And you know, not even the sort of the most diehard climate skeptics deny the data that we've had about the increase in CO2 emissions and that dramatic increase. One thing, sort of interesting thing to note about this, because you mentioned, you know, the sort of the beginnings in the 18th century of the Industrial Revolution when this really starts with the human touch on this and humans doing in biological timescale what normally we would see on a geological timescale. One of the first scientists to sort of figure this out and to sort of say it is in fact burning coal that is going to eventually lead to an increase in temperature was a Swedish chemist, Svante Arhenus, who theorized this in the 19th century, <laughs> right? And he did the climate sensitivity calculations by hand that have actually persisted for quite a long time since then. So when people sort of say, you know, well, this newfangled, you know, climate science thing, hold on. The argument that humans are can cause an increase in global temperature by burning fossil fuels is cutting edge 19th century science, right, from the 1800s. Amazing. That's how long we've seen this. Of course, like the consensus has taken a lot longer to build, and including, too, with the Keeling curve, which, which is that curve that you've, we've measured out of Mount Pinatubo and Hawaii since the 50s, but it's there and it's undeniable. Amazing. Amazing. So let's talk about the problem for a minute. I established the OSU Institute for Energy and Environment there. And at that time, Ohio still is a very manufacturing centric state. And mm -hmm. uh, the campus was burning coal at the time to actually fuel the campus. And so we had these big fights. And the issue you, you brought it up in your discussion here where you said even the skeptics agree that clearly the amount of CO2 is going up. Where the skeptics start to push back is that they say, yeah, it's going up, but is man actually causing that increase? And they, there are some legitimate studies out there that show increases in CO2 in the atmosphere and the biosphere and the like, the CO2 that emanates off of the oceans and whatnot. But the idea of anthropogenic climate change, climate change caused by man, what are the effects? Why should, I even had one guy tell me, he said, look, if global warming means that in the winter, Ohio is five to seven degrees warmer, why should I matter? I love the fact that it's five to seven degrees warmer. That's a good thing for me. So why is it a problem? 
Well, even though we might see some temporary, if we were to do nothing about the problem, right, and we saw some temporary places where uh, temperature might help some isolated communities or some specific communities, and, and the, the U.S. National Climate Assessment, the last one, which we've done four of in the United States since the 1990s, and I was part of the team that wrote the last one. It's about 300 authors, half government scientists and half people from universities like ours, came out, was released by the Trump administration in 2018. And and there, for example, you kind of see an increase in agricultural productivity that might actually happen in the Midwest this century, even if climate change is left unabated, but it does not last. It goes away. It's very short-sighted. So to someone like that, it's sort of say, okay, you might like that, and it might help you in the space of your lifetime, but is that worth what the kind of harm that it's going to cause? to children who are alive now, as they get older, to the next generation, to the next generation. We wouldn't think that it would be a smart thing to do with any other kind of environmental problem that we were creating, say, unsafe disposal of nuclear waste or kind of something like that. We think that would be irresponsible. So why wouldn't that also be irresponsible to not do anything about climate change, even if there was a short-term gain? And then overall, of course, like we live in an interconnected world where these problems, one part of the world affect every part of the world. We're seeing that right now with this pandemic, for sure. So we can't imagine that somehow Ohio or even the United States could isolate itself and be impervious of the enormous amount of damage that's going to happen to places that are already warm and get hotter and hotter and potentially unlivable. Or the small island states or low-lying, least developed countries at or below sea level right now. And as one of the effects of climate change is sea level will rise. It already is rising because of climate change. It will rise more, especially if we lose the Greenland ice sheet, let alone potentially losing parts of the Antarctic. And as sea levels go, (laughs) the sea level rises and certain places become uninhabitable. The United States cannot afford to be, even if we were somehow resilient to all of this, it would be very difficult for us to live in a world or prosper in a world which was involved in that kind of suffering and that kind of pain. So the bottom line here is if climate change didn't cause harm, there would be no reason to be worried about it. If the amount of increase in temperature that humans were making was just causing a little bit around the margins, I don't know, say like a 0.2 degrees Celsius increase in overall global mean temperature or something like that, and we could safely and clearly and carefully prepare the world for that kind of impact where you might sort of see, especially like say the higher and very high latitudes that people living in the in the Arctic and help them to prepare because they're that global average would be higher at the Arctic. That would be one thing, but that's just not where we're going. We're already, humans have already raised the temperature of the planet over one degree Celsius, over pre-industrial levels. We're headed to much higher levels unless we take very significant action. Again and again and again, we've done these big scientific assessments led by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a big body of scientists around the world, including some great scientists right here at Mason who participated in these studies. And what they find is, and these are consensus documents, they're not doing new science, they're doing assessments of all the science to date on the physical reality of climate change, on the impacts of climate change, on what we can do about it to mitigate it. And what they're finding is the impacts are actually happening much faster than were originally predicted going back to the 1990s. And across the board, in every sort of sector, we can think about food, we can talk about oceans, we can talk about human health impacts, and on and on and on, all of it gets worse. It doesn't get worse at the same rate in every place or even among those different sectors, but it all gets worse as it gets warmer, which is why we have to do something about it now. 
to people who want to ask why there's a problem, there are other things as well, right? Climate change affects rainfall patterns. And that's the one I noticed the most when I spending the last eight, nine years in, in Southern California. It was a tremendous drought throughout the whole state of California, definitely in the southern portion. That drought led to fires. Now you have four times the number of acres being burned on a per year basis now in California than just 10 years ago. Four times the number. More than four million acres have burned. But also in other parts of the country, they're getting too much water, right? This past summer, we've had our ninth biblical flood, the so-called once-in-a-thousand-year rain events. We've had nine of them just in the U.S. alone since 2010, over the last 10 years. Right. And so we're seeing these things eat away at us in very, very significant ways. And I, and I think that that will continue. You know, uh, if, if we if we just look at the amount of ice that we're losing in the Arctic. Right. And the estimates say that by 2030, we can have ice free summers in the Arctic. That's and right. without the ice on the ice caps, more of the sun's energy will be reflected back into space. And that means that the speed of warming can actually increase with more carbon in the atmosphere. So this thing can accelerate on us very, very quickly. It's a, it's a right. real problem. This is kind of the really, you know, the worrisome scenarios or what do we call the positive feedback loops where temperature increase causes a abiotic or a biotic cha- change in the biological system or a change in the structure, like when we're talking about land ice and sea ice relationships that just accelerate the process above and beyond what the temperature change is doing. So another kind of scenario there that people are very worried about, for example, is melting of the permafrost up in the Arctic. There's a tons and tons and tons of methane that are trapped underneath the permafrost in the Arctic. And as we get a warmer world, that permafrost goes, you get increased releases of methane. I've spent a good part of my career negotiating with countries and trying to make cooperative agreements on the solution side on climate change and on the preparedness and Mm -hmm. resilience side on climate change. You can't negotiate with thousands of hectares of permafrost. (laughs) You know, there is no, there's there's no one there on the other side. That's exactly right. right? And you can't put it back. And you cannot put it back. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. Unless we develop like technology that we just frankly don't have now and certainly not at scale that's affordable. And so those are the kinds of positive feedback loops that, that should be the warning sign that whatever your doubts are about the state of the science, whatever your doubts are about the pace at which change might happen, you just don't want to get to that edge and then try to walk it back because you may not be able to. It's like being in the Grand Canyon, pitch black night, and you know the edge is out there. You don't walk forward, you know, <laughs> because you know there's a drop-off point. And so you wait and you stay and you get prepared. And I think that's exactly what we need to do now. That's something for which I think we can see a lot of support in the United States uh, from all kinds of people, urban, rural, left, right, doesn't matter. When you frame things in those way, I think people do understand the problem better as one of preparedness. Talk a little bit about solutions. A, what should we be doing now as a country? And B, for those students who listen to this podcast and engage with it, what should they actually be doing relative to their futures and their future careers? Well, I think one thing to realize is that when we really begin to grapple with a country and as a world with this problem to the degree of seriousness that it deserves, 
everything that anyone does, in fact, can be part of the solution side of this problem. It's not just the climate science people. It's not just the people who do climate policy or energy policy like me. It's not just the people out there who are doing boots on the ground building of renewable energy facilities or working on the finance packages for directly going in to build those clean energy facilities or on and on and on. Everyone's going to be involved in this. Everyone's going to be involved in some way or another of taking the world in which we're creating and translating into solutions. If you are entering the insurance industry, this should be a tremendous, of tremendous interest to you because you don't want to write policies for places that might go under, might not be sustainable because of sea level rise, or that might be at increased risks and threat of cataclysmic events like we've seen with the wildfire season. And yes. that's going to give you an interest in not just your particular sector, but also having a government that takes this seriously and is putting in place the policies that solve those problems and try to mitigate and keep us from getting to the edge, as I said before. So I think that on the one hand, for those students who are already interested in environment and climate issues or think they might be, the world is fantastic, frankly. This is the growth industry of now and perpetually into the future of looking at what is it that drives your passions the most? Is it the energy sector? Is it the forestry sector? Is it food and how you make resilient food systems that can deliver and make available food as we've seen, as we've had for the last 40, 50, 60, 70 years and make those resistant and resilient to increased temperatures and climate change? Is it in infrastructure? Is it in transportation? What is your passion? Where do you see the kind of role that you could find for yourselves? Get out there and find out what's going on in it and then pick a lane and just go for it and educate yourself on it. And there are many, many classes and opportunities and for internships that we have at Mason that could help people do that. And I think for everyone else, it's like grab hold of the things you want to, but realize that this is a a thing that's going to impact whatever it is you want to do, whether it's in high finance, whether it's in the law, whether it is in healthcare, anything. We've got to be aware of the interrelations between what's happening with the climate, how fast are the solutions coming and are they working, and how that's going to intersect the world in which you're going to spend most of your life working. No, this is this is good stuff. Look, I'm, yeah, I, I think, pe- I mean, look, there's a lot to be afraid of, and we talked about that, <laughs> well, right? question. But there's so much to be excited about, and I just think that that just can't be underestimated. We are looking at the biggest opportunity for an economic transition that can increase growth, decouple economic growth from the growth in emissions, and on that solution side, remake the world in a way that would be much more resilient to all kinds of threats that we're going to see thrown at us in the future, including things like the ones we're living through right now. So let's talk about politics. December 12th was the fifth anniversary of the finalization of negotiations for the Paris Agreement. You were part of that U.S. negotiating team in Paris. As you know, President Trump pulled us out of that agreement. That's right. But what is your take on what it meant and still means in terms of climate awareness and advocacy for action? Sure. So let's start with what we know for certain about that U.S. withdrawal from Paris, which President Trump announced June 1st, 2017, is that President-elect Biden is putting us back in the Paris Agreement. That is day one. That happens on January 20th. There is no doubt about this. He reaffirmed it on December 12th on the fifth anniversary of the finalizing the negotiations on the Paris Agreement. 30 days later, he basically, the mechanics of that is uh, 
then President Biden is going to send a notification to the U.N. Secretary General and say the United States is, wants to get back in Paris. And then according to the agreement, 30 days later, we are back in. The hard part becomes, and you said, what can a country like the U.S. do? Well, what the U.S. must do is something like what President like Biden has outlined, is to make this one of the core pillars of what we see the most important things that the U.S. government should be engaged in. And Biden has sort of said this. So for him, it's responding to COVID, rebuilding the economy, responding to racial justice and equity concerns that have really come to the fore in the last year, and responding to climate change. And all four of those things work together. Because one of the ways that you can sort of, you, can, you need to address how climate solutions are equitable solutions. You can grow the economy, as I've said, and we know this now, and we've seen it happen from those states who did not follow President Trump in disengaging from the Paris Agreement. Their growth rate has increased while they've also been involved in solutions. The way the Paris Agreement was structured, you know, the U.S. has got to rejoins, and then we've got to come up with a new target under Paris for 2030. Our original target under the Paris Agreement was to 2025. President Trump let that one fall off the shelf. We've now, as we rejoin Paris, we've got to come up with a new target to 2030. President-elect Biden has already sort of said that he's joined the rest of the world's most progressive leaders in saying that where we need to get to by 2050 is net zero greenhouse gas emissions. So that's balancing your increase in non-fossil energy while still increasing your sinks, right, your land sinks, your natural sinks, and maybe some uh, new technologies that can also sequester carbon dioxide safely and make sure that those balance and so you get to net zero. So in 2030, we've got to put out a big target. What we're seeing this year is the way Paris is set up is, you know, when we were negotiating Paris, we thought it would be vacuous for world leaders to come together in 2015 and say, here's what I want to do by 2050 or 2100, because those leaders would not be in power or maybe not even alive by the time they got there. So we set up this process where parties would put out their initial targets and then every five years enhance those targets or add new ones for the next five years. So you would build this process to hit the temperature stabilization goals that we all agreed to in Paris. What we saw last Saturday is we saw some great ambition there. European Union, oftentimes a leader in this process going back to the 1990s, announced that their target for 2030 is now going to be at least 55% uh, reductions in their emissions by 2030. We saw China increase some of their original 2030 targets. We saw others come out with some pretty ambitious plans. Frankly, we saw a lot of other, other countries either stay on the sidelines or not really do much in terms of what they were thinking in terms of ambition. President-elect Biden has said that in the first 100 days, and he reaffirmed this last Saturday, of his administration, he's going to do a global summit of world leaders, um, not every country in the world, but all the major emitters, 20 countries, probably adding another 10 on there, especially more vulnerable countries, to be at the table and try to begin to put the U.S. back in the place of enhancing and increasing ambition, which is what we worked so hard on, not just to finish the text of Paris, but to help countries to meet higher ambition. That's the process that will start in that first 100 days, and that's an exciting time, which hopefully will get us back on track so that the Paris Agreement can do the job that we designed it to do. Let's say I'm a student, and I'm not so much interested in boots-on-the-ground opportunities, but I am concerned and want to make a difference. What can I do? First of all, become an educated voter on this issue. You need to participate in the political process. That is absolutely essential across the board for everything. That is something we value strongly at Mason. It goes back to our founder, or <laughs> I should say our namesake for a university, George Mason himself. Participating in the political process, becoming aware of issues like this, 
This is a defining issue for our time. And asking, asking the hard questions, right, about what it is that political leaders are doing on this. Unfortunately, and I do believe this is changing, the United States has been an outlier in the world where we're really the only major country left where there's a major debate over the reality of the problem and there's this sharp divide between the right and the left on this issue, between conservatives, liberals, progressives, what have you. The Paris Agreement celebrates this annual UN climate summit, which is called the Conference of the Parties of the Framework Convention on Climate Change. That's the, the actual meeting, a two-week meeting where we finalize the Paris Agreement. The next one of those is going to be in Britain, in Glasgow, actually, in November 2021. It's supposed to be happened this year, postponed because of the pandemic. Boris Johnson, the conservative, right, pro-Brexit leader of Great Britain, gave the, the announcement about what Britain's plans are doing on climate change. They don't have an ideological divide there. And he had to respond to British voters across the aisles, right, across the range of political opinions in Britain on what his government's doing on climate change. He's responding positively. I think the United States will get there, too. Our students can be very effective in being informed voters on this. And I think we've got the resources here at Mason to do so. Secondly, again, imagining how it is that your future career can get in front of and respond to the kind of the changes and transformations that are happening in the world and help to accelerate that in the work that you do. So let's say you're interested in finance. Let's say you're interested in the stock market. The International Finance Corporation did a study a couple of years after the Paris Agreement was concluded, and they looked at the commitments of just the top 21 developing countries, just the top 21 developing countries under the Paris Agreement. They unpacked them. You know, what did that mean in terms of transportation changes, energy sector changes, land use, and on and on and on. And they estimate, and this has been verified by other studies, that it created a $23 trillion economic transition between 2015 and 2030. It's extraordinary. It is extraordinary. And so, as I said before, everyone who's sort of interested in the world of trade and finance and everything else, that is the market that you've got to play in right now. Oh, without question. And you don't say no to that. It would be like when in the 90s when the Internet's getting going and sort of saying, yeah, take a pass on that whole Internet thing. It's not going anywhere. This transition is happening. This train is moving. It's time to get on board. And so I think becoming aware of those kinds of changes in the same way that we would expect people who are doing engineering, finance, whatever they're doing at Mason to be aware of the other big changes which are going to change the things that they're passionate about and care about, changes in the economy, changes in demographic patterns, what have you, changes in immigration patterns. You need to be aware of those things in order to anticipate where the opportunities are I get and it. where you can do some good. And I think that that's what our students should be doing, you even know, the ones who are inter- aren't interested in that sort of like, let's go out and like create a solar array. <laughs> you know, that's interesting. You brought up the finance issue, and the reality is if you are interested in finance and stocks and charting them and trying to get an understanding of what's coming next, all you have to do is look at Tesla. That's right. You look at the rise in that one, you say, wow, wait a minute. Something is fundamentally happening here because Tesla changed the industry, right? Absolutely. Every major automotive manufacturer in the world right now are working on electric vehicles. They are. And, you and it's that's right. primarily because of the market that Tesla showed us that was actually there. And politicians are responding. Gavin Newsom, governor of California, wants to phase out sale of internal, internal combustion engine vehicles by 2030. 
<laughs> and that's the, that's the seventh, eighth largest economy in the world, right? That's exactly right. And China's made sort of announcements like this. We see this, or the EU is going to be making announcements about this as part of their new European Green Deal. It's going to happen. It's going to catch like wildfire. And so being on the right side of those changes is the road to security and prosperity in your life. And you're going to do a heck of a lot of good no, I for the it. rest of the planet. No, this is good stuff. Andrew, you have given us an awful lot to think about, and we really appreciate your insights. This will wrap up things here at Access to Excellence. I want to thank again Professor Andrew Light. I am Professor Greg Washington, wishing you all the best, and stay safe, Mason Nation. If you like what you heard on this podcast, or even if you didn't, or if you have a suggestion of what you'd like to hear, let us know at dchrisdodd at gmu.edu. That's d-c-r-i-s-t-o-d at gmu.edu.